Welcome to the show. This is the Magician and the Fool podcast, and we are on episode number 37. Today, we are very fortunate to have Professor Gregory Shaw and Edward Butler back on the show. Mr. Shaw was on the show way back in episode number 8, and Mr. Butler was episode 9. Today's topic is the Parmenides by Plato, and it's a very important work. And essentially, we just use it as a jumping-off point. The main topic seemed to veer towards the one that is not. And if that sounds a little bit confusing, well, join the club. But, as Proclus says, the man who genuinely loves knowledge does not shrink from the labor involved. The more difficult a matter is to learn, so much the more eagerly does he pursue it, not trying to evade hardships. So it is a difficult topic, but Edward and Greg bring us to some very fascinating places, and I think you guys are really going to enjoy this. It was a blast for us to participate in. I'm going to keep this intro short so we can just get into the uh, meat and potatoes here, but uh, make sure to check out Professor Shaw's work. Of course, he wrote the very influential Theurgy and the Soul. He has a new essay coming out, Neoplatonism, Pagan and Christian, which is going to be in a volume entitled Soul Matters, which will be available in 2021 from SBL Press. Professor Shaw also has many, many articles on academia.edu, which I would highly recommend checking out. As for Edward Butler, you can find his articles on his website, henetology.wordpress.com. He has a new book coming out, uh, Polytheism and Indology, Lessons from the Nay Science. And you can also find a lot of his work on academia.edu. He's also got some books that you can find on Amazon, such as Essays on Hellenic Theology, Essays on Plato, Essays on the Metaphysics of Polytheism in Proclus, Essays on a Polytheistic Philosophy of Religion. Before we move on, thank you as always to our generous supporters on Patreon. We are very grateful for your support um, and humbled by your contributions. If you would like to help support what we're doing and keep us rolling, go to Patreon and support us however you can. We dedicate this to Hermes and Asclepius, and may the merits we accumulate doing this work be extended to all sentient beings so that they, together with us, may equally realize awakening.
Okay, welcome to the show, everyone. We're super excited, and uh, there's a saying, souls are perfected by friendship and worthy associations, and we can't think of any better worthy associations than our two former guests. Uh, Very happy to have them back. We have uh, Professor Greg Shaw and Edward Butler. Thank you for coming on again. We're elated to have you both back, and we're deeply excited about this conversation. I mean, it's going to be wonderful. So, uh, disclaimer at the beginning, um, this is a, this is a pretty important text. This is a important work and it's a complicated one. It's fairly difficult. And, and I'm going to speak for everyone here and say that we aren't responsible necessarily for covering every single nuance and aspect uh, perfectly. We're going to try our best and just have a conversation about the Parmenides, and hopefully it'll be of benefit. I do want to start off the conversation with a a short prayer that is found in Proclus' commentary on the Parmenides before we begin. We pray to all the gods and goddesses to guide our minds in the study that we have undertaken to kindle in us a shining light of truth and enlarge our understanding for genuine science of being to open the gates of our soul, to receive the inspired guidance of Plato, and in anchoring our thoughts in the full splendor of reality to hold us back from too much conceit of wisdom and from the paths of error by keeping us in intellectual converse with those realities from which alone the eye of the soul is refreshed and nourished. We ask from the intelligible gods, fullness and wisdom, from the intellectual gods, the power to rise aloft, from the super-celestial gods, guiding the universe, an activity free from and unconcerned with material inquiries, from the gods to whom the cosmos is assigned a winged life, from the angelic choruses a true revelation of the divine, from the good daimons an abundant filling of divine inspiration, and from the heroes a generous, solemn, and lofty disposition. So may all the orders of divine beings help to prepare us fully to share in this most illuminating and mystical vision that Plato reveals in the Parmenides. Okay, and having said that, um, if you guys don't mind, I will also just run through quickly kind of an intro. And I'd like your input, absolutely. Jump in whenever you would like. I'll kind of set the stage a little bit, and then we can dig in. Thank you for that prayer. Oh, I'm glad Beautiful. you guys liked it. Ah, I, I, found, I felt like it was perfect for this. Yeah, it is. Proclus begins all of his works with uh, prayers like that and invocations appropriate to the to the particular topic. That's I may great. have to make an informal compendium of those prayers because I was thinking, as Dominic was saying it, that I'd like to use that on a regular basis. Okay, so the the Parmenides starts off. Um, the dialogue's narrator is Cephalus, and if I mispronounce any names, excuse me. Um, who arrives in Athens with a group of friends. Uh, Cephalus runs into Plato's half-brothers, Adamantus and Glaucon, and asks them about uh, their half-brother Antiphon, who can recite a conversation from Pythiodorus, in whose house the conversation took place. Cephalus, Adamantius, and Glaucon then pay a visit to Antiphon, who, after a bit of prodding, agrees to uh, replay the conversation. And so this is the conversation between Socrates, uh, Zeno, and Parmenides. Um, 
As Antipophon tells the story, the noted philosophers Parmenides, uh, around 65 years old, Zeno, around 40 years old, uh, they've come to Athens for a great festival of Athena. Having heard of their arrival, a youthful Socrates in his 20s and some friend of his, friends of his have come to Pythiodorus' house to listen to Zeno read from his book. Uh, at the end of Zeno's performance, Pythiodorus, Parmenides, and Aristotle, who have been waiting outside the house, return and witness an exchange between Zeno and Socrates. The exchange begins with Socrates, I guess, giving Zeno grief about this work um, and what he sees to be a reproduction of his master's of his master's work, Parmenides. Um, Zeno explains the reasoning behind this, saying, "No, basically." Um, when I was in my youth, I, I put this work together. It wasn't really supposed to be mass produced, but the book got out there and now I'm using it to defend Parmenides from uh, detractors who have problems with, with his work. And so Socrates con concedes the point um, and then they kind of get into a conversation. Zeno and Socrates or Zeno and uh, Parmenides seeing potential in the young Socrates challenge him to kind of debate his ideas of the forms and that's where uh things get going did i get that pretty much right yeah yeah um you know just um just to make some general comments at the outset um we see the significance that uh that plato accords to this conversation from you know and let me preface this by saying that we don't know, we don't have any way of knowing the historicity of it in a, a sort of a mundane sense. I'm not sure that that's a question that mattered to the uh, Platonic commentarial tradition. Um, but as it's framed, uh, it has this majestic solemnity to it, both from the setting at the greater Panathenia and the Panathenia is something akin to, um, I mean, it comes about a month after the Athenian New Year at the summer solstice. And so, you know, it's, it's a very grand occasion, famous for uh, bestowing a, a new uh, woven uh, uh, garment to the monumental uh, cult statue of Athena, uh, on the Acropolis, also known for uh, commemorating the uh, battle between the gods and the giants, the Gigantomachia, uh, which is referred to in a couple of other places, also in Plato's corpus, uh, with a philosophical significance, like we see in uh, The Sophist, in which the conflict between the friends of the forms and the materialists, or uh, let's say uh, reductionist materialists, is characterized as a gigantomachia, as as a battle between the gods and the giants. And you know, on top of it, you have this extraordinary figure, this 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 gray eminence, so to speak, Parmenides, together with his partner Zeno. And we know from other uh, authors, interestingly, that uh, they were indeed life partners and uh, very interesting figures in their own right, of course. 
Parmenides, we know, uh, wrote a constitution for uh, his city, Elea, in southern Italy, and that uh, Zeno died fighting for uh, that constitution during an episode of tyranny, in fact. And so we have, uh, we have all of this about the setting, the participants, and then we have this remarkable uh, uh, account from Plato of uh, the hands through which this account was transmitted, uh, which is somewhat unprecedented in the other dialogues. Some of the other dialogues have uh, aspects of indirect transmission, but none of them so many layers so carefully uh, deployed as we have with the Parmenides. And that also adds, I think, to the perception of this as a grand, a grand discourse. Yeah, it's interesting. It's um, we heard from this guy who heard from someone else whose brother heard it from these guys, and so yeah, it, it does filter through a lot of a lot of hands and a lot of voices, and everything in it, at least from the Neoplatonic um, interpretation, is very intentional. Um, the characters, the way they interact, the city that they came from, the city that they're, that they're going to is all very uh, important in setting the stage and aligning itself with kind of the greater platonic cosmology. So I, I have a question about the, the indirect transmission, because I know that in symposium also, there's a, somebody had a story, he heard it from somebody and um, I've, I've noted it. And, and when I teach it, I, I try to help my students realize this is kind of a flashback sort of um, recollection and what do you think the function of that is? Why do you suppose Plato engages in that indirect layered sort of uh, revealing of this? And you said that it provides or gives more importance to it. And how does that work, do you think, for Plato? Because I'm you know, trying to I was thinking imagine. About this myself. Uh, I was thinking yeah. about this myself last night. Um, you know, it, it's, it's difficult to say. Um, I think on the one hand, you look at something like that and you say, well, from our contemporary uh, presuppositions, we would see such a documented chain of hands right, right. Uh, as an attempt to uh, shore up the historicity of the conversation. But that's uh, curious because the historicity of it is uh, generally not taken seriously by contemporary critics, doesn't seem to have been of particular importance in antiquity. Right. Uh, the, the question of its, of its historicity, whether such a conversation took place, uh, or if it did, how accurate the account of it is. And so I think under those circumstances, one has to at least give some consideration to the approach that a commentator like Proclus takes, where he finds the indirect transmission of it to be symbolic of the mediated rather than immediate presence of the metaphysical principles discussed in the dialogue to the physical world, that 
such principles are not present to the physical world in an immediate, unproblematic way, but rather through layers of mediation. And that this is essential to the theme of the dialogue, and therefore it's expressed through the narrative form by having these layers of transmission and this indirection. And also this feeds into the interpretation of the characters, of the people narrating it. I think, uh, you know, one thing that's lovely is the uh, remarks that uh, Proclus makes about uh, Antiphon uh, being involved in raising horses like his grandfather was. And this is interesting in so many ways, just because of these, these little details that, uh, that Antiphon has the same name as his grandfather. And so you, you have this kind of subtle allusion to things having the same name and yet perhaps being different in some ways and yet having certain other things in common. Uh, and then you have, of course, the symbolism of horse rearing and the connection with Plato's Phaedrus, for instance, in which the soul is uh, closely associated with uh, horses and with horsemanship. And this is something also that we get in the poem of the historical Parmenides, uh, where we have the invocation of horses that are bringing one's soul to the presence of the gods. I, I think that the, the personae who are responsible for bringing this discourse to it are supposed to be an inseparable part of communicating the themes and the message of that discourse. And this is, in a sense, in agreement with what you were saying about the commentary tradition in the um, the Hindu uh, commentators, in that it, the, there's an integrated kind of layered in quality that's not just giving us information, but it's inviting us into a whole world of images that connect to other sorts of uh, documents and sacred texts that bring us in, in a sort of a more um, multi-layered kind of way for ourselves. Uh, I, at least that's some of the take I'm getting from this. Yes, I think that uh, we find in the commentarial traditions of of many civilizations, uh, but certainly we see this powerfully in the Indian and the Chinese commentarial traditions. First of all, I think a kind of distinctive relationship to the text where a reverence for the text is combined with uh, a confidence, I think, that because the text has limit, has, has, has depths that we couldn't possibly plumb, we can use commentary on the text as a vehicle for innovation and for our own creativity. And we can actually combine, uh, a, um, a rigorous faithfulness to the text and reverence for the text with using it as a vehicle 
for individual creativity and for the expression of, of, of unique and novel philosophical perspectives, because we find that far from being an expression of stagnation, as I think these commentarial traditions are often seen and dismissed with terms like scholasticism and, and, and pedantry and so forth, uh, they're actually an expression of extraordinary vitality in, in these traditions, in the readings of these texts. They express the, uh, the liveliness of the text, the, the living nature of the text, uh, far from uh, closing that down in some way. And secondly, the way in which these commentarial traditions open out onto the broader traditions in these cultures, where you don't find the philosophical tradition at odds with the religious tradition, but rather you find them in this incredibly fruitful dialogue, enriching one another, uh, rather than the stereotype that we have in the West that, well, it's not philosophy unless it's engaged in some kind of confrontation with religious thought and experience. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Yep. And I, I think you can see this a little bit with Philo of Alexandria as well, who sees many layers of these sacred doctrines uh, in, in different ways. And I assume you are to look at all the different dialogues in this, in this sort of way, not just the Parmenides. Yes, the the Parmenides had an extraordinary importance in the ancient Platonic curriculum, at least going back as far as Iamblichus. And perhaps further, we certainly see that already for Plotinus, there is, uh, there's obviously from remarks that he makes in one or two places, there's already a tradition of a, a deep reading of the Parmenides. But it's difficult for us to trace it back further than that simply because our records of the early academy are so fragmentary. But this method of interpretation was applied to all of Plato's dialogues. And given an understanding of their scope, we understand how to fit them all together into a larger architectonic. And this is what makes the ancient manner of reading Plato different from what we find among modern critics who, if they see any difference at all in uh, a simply surface reading of what's argued in one dialogue versus another, begin to talk about Plato changing his mind evolving, Mm -hmm. uh, having uh, periods in his work, and so forth. And they start to pull apart the Platonic corpus. The approach in antiquity really could not have been more different. They were concerned to harmonize different dialogues into a single body of thought. And they were encouraged to do this, I think, from Plato's own practice, because Plato lived uh, to a ripe old age for the time. And uh, we know from ancient testimonies that he was always revising his corpus. And so it's not as though he had 
left behind uh, early thoughts in favor of, of later views. There was no indication of this in antiquity. And so philosophers set themselves to figuring out how the different points of view that we, that we see in many of the dialogues, how they are integrated into a greater architectonic. And this kind of deep interpretation that the later Platonists practiced is part of this effort. It's part of what you have to do to pull all of these threads together into a single tapestry. And I think what's also interesting in light of what you just said, Edward, and I agree with everything you said completely, is that what moves uh, the, the philosophers and those in the Platonic school is a kind of eros for some sort of deep transformative beauty and attraction they feel for what's being revealed through those texts. And they have an affective connection to it that, that they sort of ride on, I would say, that might not really be sensed by contemporary commentators who don't have that sense of reverence for what's being revealed in the material. The question then is really, sometimes I wonder, what is it that allows some people to feel that, that, that quality that's being revealed through the text? And why some people just don't see that or feel that at all. And it seems to be kind of unique to individuals reading it, whether they sort of get a sense of that or not. Um, I'm, I'm not sure what it is in people, um, that opens them up to, or not. I mean, I've had students in classes that somehow they all, they seem to really get it when I'm talking about these things. And I find out later that, that those students have taken psychedelics. You know, I mean, and it just seems to be, okay, why is it that they seem to get this stuff? Some, something's been opened up in them to something more than just a metaphysical materialism that we're all raised to believe in and, and adhere to, which is a kind of an atheism, ultimately, uh, as you described it in your, in your manuscript on Ed Lurie and, and, and Bakshi's book. Um, yeah, I don't know, um, what it is that allows some people to sense that that's the music that was being heard in the tradition and why other people don't hear it at all. Uh, well, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think that, I think that those of us who, those of us who consider ourselves philosophers, I think that we're not unfamiliar with a kind of existential threshold that, that people seem to, need to cross to begin doing philosophy with a certain kind of commitment, a certain kind of seriousness. And I suppose that some people who just see philosophy as a kind of a debating society, they, I suppose, would think that such existential commitment is a defect, that it's about having some kind of illicit commitment to certain propositions so that you have your thumb on the scale. Mm -hmm. This is not how philosophy, I think, through most of its history and through most of the civilizations in which it's been practiced, and I would say that philosophy has by no means been something peculiar to the West. I think that in 
in any tradition that is sufficiently fully documented for us, I think that there is philosophy. I think that the wisdom traditions of every civilization are philosophy. It may not manifest all of the same characteristics because philosophy grows and changes with the needs of the society in which it's practiced and the kinds of problems that the society faces are the things to which philosophers respond. But throughout most of these civilizations and throughout most of its history, I think that philosophy has actually been synonymous with having certain powerfully held existential commitments and a transformative experience as well, like you say. And it could very well be that in our predominantly materialistic society, it's necessary in many instances for people to have the kind of experience that they have with psychedelics in order to cross that kind of existential threshold that we see in the poem of the historical Parmenides, where in an overpowering experience, encountering a goddess, Parmenides finds that he has come away with certain truths. He is, he's, he's in possession of certain truths. And then those truths, we're going to intellectually interrogate them. We're going to explicate them. We're going to struggle to articulate them with others and in a community of dialogue and discourse. It's not as though having a theophany, having a revelation is going to cut us off from that. Rather, that's going to be the kind of opening bid that's, that, that's going to be the opening of the door to that kind of dialogue because we have something to say and we have some skin in the game as the saying goes. And so it empowers dialogue. It doesn't shut it down. And I think this is a very important fact about the way in which religion and philosophy have actually worked together most most of the time in most of the cultures in which we can see them interacting. It's funny that you guys mentioned uh, psychedelics. I was going to make a joke later um, when we began the the back and forth between Aristotle and Parmenides, I was going to say that this is where they passed out the the mushrooms and things just go off the rails uh, <laughs> at that point of the Parmenides. But uh, so going back a notch, um, Greg, I'm what- just going to point out uh, on a more uh, on a more mundane matter that people should be aware that. We're not talking about the famous philosopher Aristotle. Right. True. Good point. Uh, this is this is a young man of the same name mm-hmm. uh, who uh, later, as as we're told, was a member of the oligarchy called the Thirty Tyrants, which seized power in Athens uh, in the wake of the Peloponnesian War, and not the famous philosopher would would be. Beautiful if it had been, but uh, those those dates definitely don't lie. No, good clarification. Janice, I think you had something. Yeah, I just wanted to mention, um, 
this is a really important point that we're kind of leading into in the beginning here. And I think that part of the issue um, that maybe differentiates the people who quote unquote get it and don't is uh, the meaning of philosophy itself uh, now as opposed to 2000 years ago. Um, and I really, I consider the enlightenment in many ways to be a tragedy, at least for our intellectual and spiritual history in the West in um, really post enlightenment quote unquote philosophy and somewhat pre enlightenment I think is the reason that people unfairly differentiate religion and philosophy. I don't know that if we go back to the time of these philosophers, I'm not sure that I'm not sure that any of them would have seen what they were doing as irreligious. I think that I think that in in many ways what they were doing was religion. Um, that we're now calling philosophy, we could say. I mean, their concept of what philosophy was had an inherently spiritual component to it. And I think could be argued was even seen as a um, a gift of the gods via intellectual procession. Yeah, I think that's accurate. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, with regard to the Enlightenment, I think that we have to recognize, though, that a reaction against religion was necessary in Europe at that time because of the hedge the because of the hegemony uh, under which they lived one which had already begun in Proclus's day and which the philosophers of the last generations of the academies in Athens and Alexandria already were forced to struggle against uh, and so I think that, the issue of the relationship between philosophy and religion became complicated in a new way due to Christian hegemony and the kinds of intellectual, psychological, and social moves that followed from the way in which that religion positioned itself relative to philosophy and attempted to co-opt philosophy in a more forceful way than had been the case. So that, that raises a question for me, and it, and it kind of moves us to sort of like um, um, more concretely reflecting on uh, the topic of the one in the Parmenides. And the, the question I wanted to ask, you know, underlying this, this entire sort of reflection about the one in the Parmenides is what's at stake here? And then what's the, what is the consequence of reifying the one is into a singular kind of supreme being one with the hegemonic sort of institutionalization of it in social world through the church and so on. It seems as if with this dialogue and the way the Neoplatonists read it, what you've got is a way of, of preventing that sort of, of, um, mistake from happening. Uh, and and it, and that's why I think it was uh, Trouillard who who said that you weren't really considered a Neoplatonist unless you had done commentary and really fully immersed yourself in the Parmenides. And short of that, you weren't really in the circle of what Neoplatonism Neoplatonism is. And I see um, the loss of the the one that is not, you know, as as it's articulated in the in Parmenides. And in making it into a one that is and rules over, 
that seems to be the key piece that that topples the beauty of the world that they lived in and and it gave them so much vitality mentally and religiously and so on and then it became as you put it this hegemonic system that was already developing in the time of proclus and maybe not quite developing that much at the time of the Amblicus, but certainly at the time of Proclus, it had it had become recognized. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, uh, I mean, Plotinus already in his day uh, saw the danger of it and spoke in specific and categorical terms about the dangers of people who, as he said, contract the divine into one. In other words, what we today call monotheism. And he already at that time, when there was not yet any kind of a notion that this, this kind of thought could pose a danger to the whole edifice of civilization as it was then known. But he was already warning about it and in ways that were extraordinarily far-sighted. I think when we look at his uh, his uh, his so-called essay against the Gnostic, mm-hmm. um, which is in fact directed at these monotheists, mm-hmm. whether they be Gnostics of one flavor or another, or what we today know as Christians, which Porphyry specifies in his biography of Plotinus, talking about this period. You know, he specifically says, you know, at this time, we didn't distinguish between all of these, all these, these, these different sects. But what Plotinus finds that they have in common is precisely this, this contracting the divine into one. You know, Edward, I, I, I don't, if you're in a flow there, just go with it. But I have a question that, that comes to mind. No, as you describe it. Well, there's an impulse that wants to contract these things into a singular one. In, in the human imagination and in our, in our habit. And it seems to be, um, the struggle seems to be how to not give into that impulse to reify the one that is not into some sort of singular and supreme one. And I, I think that that's an ongoing kind of, of effort that you never have to, you, you can never let go of it because there's something in me that wants to do that. Um, just sort of as a, a, a I just lockstep, oh, you know, and, and then I find myself having to dissolve whatever sort of idol I've created in, in that sense. And, and then rediscovering some sort of, I don't know, it's, this is where it's hard to articulate what it is. What is it that I rediscover? Because as soon as I start to say, what is it that I rediscover? I'm starting to reify it again. And this one that is not is a tricky, tricky thing to, to, to try to get feel for from our side of it. There's there's well, two ways that uh, I'd like to approach it. Oh, did you wanna? Yeah, just wanna, like, just wanna jump in briefly. I yeah. was gonna say that you know that yeah, because we're getting into a sort of apophatic thing here. But um, uh, I don't know that it's uh, totally necessary for this conversation. But one thing that occurs to me is perhaps that this impulse to contract or um, make darkness visible or you know render the render the the one into a sort of manifest one might be also um, corollary to an emerging psychological awareness uh, emerging from the unconscious at that time in humanity, or at least in Western humanity, 
of of what Jung would call the self-image, developing develop a, a, a new uh, dimension of the self-image, going from a differentiated you know plurality into a sort of coalescing of a of a uh, concrete concretized self-image. I think that there's there's something there. And then regarding the Gnostics, yeah, I think that it's pretty clear that there was not a specific a specific enough understanding of 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 the Gnostic movement because they were pretty solidly middle Platonists, many of them. And um, there's an argument, you know, there's a lot. I think arguments could be made for a sort of sympathy between many Gnostics and uh, Neoplatonists at the time. Well, I mean, let me speak first to the historical issues that you just raised. We can't speak of Neoplatonism in Plotinus's time because it's Plotinus who brings forth what we know as Neoplatonism. And so we refer to the Platonism of that era prior to Plotinus by this term Middle Platonism. And certainly part of the mix in the people who were reading Plato's texts, discussing Plato's texts, and appropriating them in various ways are the people that Plotinus is criticizing. And I think that in part, it's out of this kind of conflict that Plotinus, you can tell, is hesitant to weigh in on. He's, he's hesitant to introduce divisive considerations and debates into this community. It would be easier to not call people out on this and to not have these kinds of discussions because they're uncomfortable. But this critique, I think, is really part of what gives birth to what we then call Neoplatonism because of the more specific understanding of certain kinds of issues that came forth out of these debates. Not only out of these debates, of course, also with debates with Stoics, for example, this is a whole process of centuries of philosophical disputation during the Hellenistic and the early Roman imperial period, by which I think certain issues became more concrete and became concrete to the point that it became crucial to establish certain kinds of more specific understandings of what people meant. Because, you know, and this is true of philosophy in general. We find this everywhere that for a long time, people can practice philosophy and it can be very congenial because they talk, they talk over their real differences of opinion and view. And if the tradition continues long enough for this conversation to start to get more concrete and more specific, then it starts to get a little tougher it starts to get a bit more intense because people are able to be more specific and concrete about what they actually mean. And terms are forced into a more articulate form. So that's the kind of process that I would see going on. I don't think that Plotinus fails to understand what the Gnostics he's criticizing are doing. I think that he is saying that 
there are going to be certain kinds of consequences. We need to understand what the consequences of certain kinds of conceptual formations and certain kinds of interpretations of the Platonic corpus, because he's mainly concerned about the kind of use that people are making of Plato's texts. He's concerned about the consequences that those are going to have. Okay, so that for the historical point. The second point I'd like to speak to is the issue of psychological factors. The issue that I think I would raise here is that of uniqueness. The reason why we speak about a one that is not, a one that is not, that is not one itself, is because what we want to foreground is the phenomenon of uniqueness itself. And I think that the psychological resistance to such a conception of the one comes from a tendency very fundamental to repress uniqueness because uniqueness is the source of the greatest joy and the greatest pain for us uh, as mortal. Because truly recognizing the uniqueness of things, their irreplaceability, their unsubstitutability is exactly at the heart of the pain that being mortal presents us with all the time. And so in a nutshell, I think that this is the source of the psychological resistance and the reason why we will so frequently fall away from a conception of the principle of individuation, because this is what the one is, that honors through the negativity of the principle itself, the reality of those unique existing entities in their very uniqueness and will not step back from that and will not step away from that. So that's what's at stake. And that's the source of the psychological resistance, I would say. Build, build this up for me just a little bit, Edward. So the resistance to the one that is not, that we feel, is in part our resistance to the existential experience of uniqueness. And with uniqueness comes the raw uh, joy as well as pain that comes with a mortal existence. But what is it about the one that is not that that corresponds so clearly to uniqueness the connection between uniqueness and the one that is not could you could you um, unpack that a little bit for me yeah very basically when we talk about the principle tohen the one what this means is this is the principle by virtue of which each thing is one thing. It's not a principle by virtue of which all things are one thing, one single thing. And this is something that was readily understandable to any Greek reader of Plato. And if a person is accustomed to philosophical Greek and the way in which principles are discussed, then it becomes obvious that and from everything about how ancient thinkers talk about questions that have to do with the one, it's evident. We can see it in uh, Aristotle's critiques of the Platonists. Uh, 
in books M and N of the metaphysics, for instance, where, you know, I mean, he talks about the significance of people who, who speak of the one. And what he means is people who speak of a principle of individuation for things, which is distinct from the principle of being. And when we talk about metaphysical principles, okay, I, I think that we need to fit this into a broader narrative about the process by which people began to articulate principles as distinct from their instances. And in that process, you begin to train your mind to think of principles in more and more abstract ways so that you're not thinking of the principle as something itself that is totalizing its products, or rather you're seeing that tendency to be the totalizing instance of instances as an expression, not of the strength of a principle, but of its weakness. And so in Platonism, what we see is that as you move to more and more primordial and universal principles, they exercise a lighter and lighter touch, so to speak. Their presence is less and less totalizing over their instances until we get to the one where in its negativity, because just just to basically explain to people the dialogue that we're talking about, when you get into the second part of it and you have the discussion of these series of hypotheses concerning the one, the culmination of the first hypothesis, which later Platonists interpreted as concerning the one itself in the highest sense, the culmination of that first hypothesis is that that one neither is nor is one. Now, by having such a negative conception of that principle, what that means is that it releases the things which are one into being more perfectly and more freely than posterior principles, inferior principles of formation. And so that's what we mean by the significance of the one that is not. It's that capacity to release things so fully into being that it is not there as a totalizing instance of instances that absorbs them mm -hmm. and ultimately would take back that which it grants them mm -hmm. because it grants it to them precisely without being itself a thing which grants unity to thing. Rather, think, yeah. because there are ones, there is the one. I think somewhere Plotinus says it gives what it does not have. Exactly. And, and I, that somehow captured what you're saying for me, rather, you know, succinctly, um, that it, it, it releases things into being more effectively than it would if it was some sort of totalizing dominant supreme figure that gave and, and, but, but there's a sort of gives what it doesn't have. That's very, um, frustrating to the conceptualizing mind that wants to sort of create a reified structure 
because it, it just, you can't do it with that. Yeah, and yet, uh, and I, this came up in a discussion that you and I uh, had recently, Greg, in another medium. This, I think, is something which actually trickles down, so to speak, into our understanding of all metaphysical principles. Because I think that we can't even properly begin to do metaphysics without understanding that metaphysical principles, in some sense, are all there and not there, and are there precisely by not being there in a certain sense. And this is why I think the kinds of disputes between metaphysicians and naturalists can be so unedifying because of the tendency to expect that metaphysical principles are going to be there to be found in some metaphorical microscope or telescope. And if they are, they're going to interfere with a naturalistic account of things. They're going to interfere with the operation of the natural sciences. And the ancients, the first people to speak about metaphysics and to speak about metaphysical principles were themselves very far from this kind of misunderstanding because they understood that these principles couldn't ground the things that needed grounding. They couldn't ground the, uh, the, the things of, of nature, the objects of naturalistic inquiry, and there was naturalistic inquiry in, in antiquity in many civilizations, make no mistake about that. They couldn't fulfill that grounding function if they were there in the way that the things that they were explaining are there. And if we just follow through that logic, which is a very ancient logic, you know, and it, it begins, I think, in many ways in um, the effort that we see in so many civilizations of philosophers to civilize king, to civilize rulers by separating the power which is exercised and that in the name of which power is exercised from the person who exercises it. I think that that's kind of the engine that actually the social engine that gets this going to some extent is that process. The culmination of it is at the most abstract level that we see in this dialogue, where through ultimately very simple logical reflections, but ones which are followed through with a great deal of fidelity, the consequences are followed through with fidelity, and the radicalism isn't dismissed, we don't step back from the radicalism of these simple logical inferences. We recognize that if the principle of individuation, the thing that makes things, each thing, one thing, is itself one thing, then there would have to be something else granting it this unity, or else it would have to be granting itself that unity, and then you would have a duality in it between that which grants unity and that which is unified. And so we would have an infinite regret. And this is ultimately the basic inference, I think, which is carried through in the dialogue, in the second part, in the diverse hypotheses 
applied to many different determinations and to many different configurations of different kinds of ones. But this is the basic logical insight. And it's a, it's simple enough, but what is complicated is to follow through with fidelity those basic logical inferences and to not step back from the conclusions that you arrive at. Hey, Edward, I want to jump in. I've got so many things to say. You guys are kind of blowing my mind here <laughs> uh, with some great info. Um, what do you think about, I, I think it was Dylan, I, I, maybe it's a well-known thing that uh, Proclus and the Amblichus didn't quite agree with um, the one I think it was Iamblichus that thought that there was an ineffability, an ineffable something beyond the one. Um, I think that kind of pertains to what you were talking about, where this can go on ad infinitum if you keep if you keep going with it. What do you think about that difference between Proclus and Iamblichus in that way? Does that make well, sense? I mean, I think that if you read the things that Proclus says about Iamblichus, what you often see is uh, this notion uh, that Iamblichus is divinely inspired, but maybe not always specific enough or systematic enough for the desires of a Proclus, who is a very systematic, a very organized kind of thinker. And so... What we get in the Platonic school is, I think, a lot of conversations about how best to articulate what are fundamentally common intuitions and common understandings. And so I don't, myself, I don't think that there is a large difference of opinion among these Platonic thinkers so much as there is uh, a very complicated dispute about the best terms in which to articulate the basic insights. And so... Well, I, I, I just want to say I agree with the way you just are, uh, expressed that. I think they have these common intuitions and there are differences in the way they try to articulate them. But I don't see a fundamental... There may be some fundamental sort of differences in the nature of the consequences of embodiment for the soul uh, in a way that uh, Proclus and Iamblichus and maybe Damascus articulate that. But that's a different kind of question. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a very, that, that, that's in many ways, I think there is a more serious difference between these philosophers on the question of the nature and consequences of embodiment for the soul. Yeah. And there is about the nature of the one. Right. Um, the one thinker about whom we have some questions in this regard, I think, is Porphyry. And mm -hmm. I think it's difficult due to the fragmentary nature of his corpus to be certain how profound the disagreement is here. But he seems to be the only one that I think there is a question in the later Platonic thinkers about whether he had a fundamental difference in the understanding here. True. But ultimately, my sense, and I mean, my attitude with respect to Porphyry has actually changed a little over time. And 
I'm inclined now to think that maybe he's not he's not really so far from this basic consensus either, but that there again it's a question of the conceptual articulation of a basically shared vision. However, that being said, um, in Damascius, who's the last head of the academy at Athens, and who is an incredibly faithful reader of Proclus, but also a very gifted critic of, of, of Proclus, he feels that uh, he's more true to Iamblichus's insights by bringing in, by distinguishing, I should say, a principle, an ineffable principle, or a principle of ineffability, it would be better to say, uh, as distinct from the principle of individuation, because he feels, I think, that the principle of individuation is always going to be drawn toward being. And I think this goes back to the idea that we already have in Aristotle, that there's a certain convertibility, as Aristotle terms it, between the concepts of unity and of being, that they're, they're, they're so closely intertwined that for Damascius, and he feels that he's following in Iamblichus' footsteps, he needs to distinguish a principle of ineffability prior to that, which is even more austerely, negatively conceived. But I think the important thing to recognize is how this is simply going further in the same direction. It's actually a further radicalization of the basic insight in order to make it even more clear, in order to make it even more categorical. And I would argue that we really can't escape the idea that part of what is making it so important to be clear and categorical and articulate and emphatic about this is because of monotheism and because of the recognition that people will, almost no matter what you say, no matter how negatively you frame the first principle, they're going to reify it because it's now a whole social institution. It's now a whole institution of power. And so as time goes on, I think it becomes even more important to stress the negativity. And I think that this is why you get uh, these even stronger terms in Damascus. It's, it's not that he's changing direction. He's finding that even Proclus isn't categorical enough, isn't clear enough. And this is why he uses very strong terms, like saying that the totality of things is anarchos and anitios, uh, without cause, without principle, anarchos. It's a kind of metaphysical anarchism, in fact. And I think that he, he feels that one needs to be this categorical about it precisely because he already saw in his day the emergence of this cottage industry of so-called negative theology, where monotheism appropriates 
this doctrine respecting the first principle and says all of this negativity is just a peculiar way of saying that it is and it is one with a vengeance, so to speak. That all of this is simply a way of humbling the human intellect as though it's just gibberish, as though it's just paradox mongering, as though it's just contradictory, uh, as some sort of exercise, or perhaps even leading to some kind of mystical experience. And in this way, actually making it increasingly difficult. And we see how difficult it is today to even articulate these doctrines because one is always being spoken over. One is always being outspoken by this reifying power. Uh, and it simply becomes difficult to get people to uh, take seriously a simple statement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is why some of us have to, uh, <laughs> I'm not speaking about anyone in particular, but why some of us have to be what appears strident and polemical on the matter. Um, if I might interject very briefly, I think there's also a, um, I think that the difference we see may also, can also be attributed to the fact that when we're encountering Iamblichus, and perhaps those of his school, if, if there were any survivals at any point, we're also dealing with people who were actively engaged in, th um, theurgy. And so we're personally, um, personally sort of, encountering the uh, cosmic and hypercosmic and end cosmic principles through active um, visionary and uh, ritual uh, technologies. And so I think that when we're, I think that part of the difference in um, opinion or perspective may also be due to the difference between the approaches, the, the approaches to, to these issues, because, because we're, it's going to, the, the insights and perceptions that, uh, result from that kind of practice are, are going to be pretty different from the approaches of those not engaged in theurgy. Well, yeah. And I mean, let's, let's, let's put it, let's put it in a broader context than theurgy. When one encounters a living God, one does not encounter, one does not encounter an entity that is, uh, that presents itself as part of a, uh, a limited field. Very often, one encounters an entity that is adequate to all things and that contains all things. And we see this in pretty much every polytheistic civilization, if it's well enough documented. Things like the vision of Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita, the testimony that we have from Egyptian hymns, but also the implicit understanding that we find in some of the humblest dedications to Hellenic gods by very ordinary and not lofty intellects, not subtle theologians. This experience of the all-encompassingness of each god and 
this presents to us moderns who live under hegemonic monotheism and have and have uh, imbibed deeply into uh, our understanding the presuppositions of that culture, of that uh, regime. It presents us the problem of whether we understand these accounts on their own terms with respect to the gods to which they are applied or whether we assume that the very perception of a god as totality requires that that testimony is not about the god to which it is actually addressed, but rather to some other which would encompass that god and all the other gods about which the same kind of totality is affirmed. Now, in antiquity, where what was taken for granted was that there were many gods. There was nothing more evident to the ancients than that there were many gods. The fact then that people have this experience of each god, at least in principle, and in fact of very many gods, this experience of their totality, of their unlimitedness, is something then about the nature of what it is to be a god. Whereas we today look at it and say that this is something about the nature of God, singular. That it presents itself as many different gods. And this is simply not the background understanding that informed the very experiences with which we as modern readers are trying to engage. And so at the same time that we're reading those experiences, we're erasing them. <laughs> we don't have the imaginal capacity to even take it in. And that's what you're well, saying. I mean, you know, I try to look at it in a more pragmatic sense that I think that we have more imaginal capacity than perhaps we realize. And that what we need is different conceptual language that doesn't deform the experience. And if we get that language in place and normalize talking in that way, then maybe we'll find that our imaginal capacity is better than we had thought. And maybe we'll find that we're actually further along spiritually than we thought that we were. I think it is just such a different paradigm. We are so, we have this ingrained monotheism from, from birth really, and it goes how many thousands of years back that to think outside that box is, is very difficult. When you were talking about the, the gods within each other, um, it made me, it, it makes me realize that, um, for instance, the Greek magical papyri can be very confusing. You have um, gods that are kind of conflated with each other that don't necessarily seem uh, connected. You know, you have um, Osiris and Sabaoth, you know, two different cultures. So the, the way that the Henids operate or are with, with their u- unity, unifying principle of uniqueness, uh, makes that stuff make a lot more sense. And I was wondering, because we have such a, a spectrum of understanding of people listening, if you can maybe touch on the unity between Henids and how that works um, in relation to the one. 
if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, first of all, for people who aren't familiar with the terminology of henad, henad is basically a Greek term. It simply means unit. And so tohen is the one and individual units are henades, henads. And this is a terminology which, um, you know, it's a little bit hard to say at what point it actually emerges. Early on, you have a kind of interchangeability of uh, the term henad and the term monad to express a unit. And ultimately, these things come actually from conversational Greek. And, you know, at some point, you know, were, were used to, to designate concrete everyday things. But at a certain point, they become technical terms. And already you see, you see this beginning in Plato, in the Philebus, where he, he says, you know, people can have certain kinds of specious discussions about the one and the many, he says, but, you know, where it starts to get concrete and meaningful, where the rubber meets the roads, so to speak, we would say, is, you know, when we start to talk about monads or henads and we start to talk about you know what is what is what is a unit of 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 one kind or another what is it to be a unit and in uh platonists uh starting at least from iamblichus but you know maybe in the kind of in the kind of murky background starting somewhat earlier we start to get a discourse about the gods as divine henad as units of a certain extraordinary kind. And in Proclus, we get this articulated most perspicuously, I think, uh, with the notion that the henads are all in each. Uh, they form a distinctive manifold of a kind that no other kind of unit does, where the unity of that entire manifold is not vested in someone, but rather in each one. And this is what I've characterized as a polycentric manifold. And this is the distinctive characteristic of the divine manifold, the multiplicity of the gods, is that all of the gods are in each one. And this is what expresses itself, we can say, in these kinds of practices in which one god is recognized in another god and practices of syncretism in which gods are fused with one another or identified with one another. It's grounded not in some one that all of those individual gods are mere aspects of, or names for, or masks of, but rather in this quality, which is basic to what it is to be a god. And that is to have all of the other gods present to oneself immediately, not mediately, not mediated through someone, but immediately all in each. And this is then the theory which grounds that practice, which we can see so widespread in so many different cultures. Would you say, um, Edward, that 
that this move towards this explicit monotheism subverts that practice and subverts that experience. And that in fact, the kind of um, that all are in each also relates to the uniqueness that you were talking about earlier, that's the source of our joy and pain as individual mortals, that in some way, our mm, intrinsic identity is not separated from the way that the Henads themselves exist, that, that we're invited somehow into that life, but that, that we don't or aren't able to even enter the foyer of that existence when we block it off with this monotheistic, metaphysical and theological sort of, you know, barrier. It keeps yeah, us think, outside of experiencing. Yeah, I, I think that I think that it does create a spiritual obstacle, and I think that I think that spiritual teachers in various traditions deal with this in various ways, and we, because of the way in which our understanding is distorted by what's happened with these terms conceptually the way in which we've moved the pieces around on the chessboard, so to speak, I think that we don't necessarily recognize the interventions of spiritual teachers past and present, you know, often in, in non-Western languages. And so therefore uh, preserving a certain kind of pragmatic understanding until they're brought into translation. And then they can be corrupted even by those very teachers themselves simply through the vagaries of translation. But I mean, I think that this is, this is already inherent in the way in which Hindu teachers speak about Brahman, in the way in which Taoist teachers speak about the Tao. Uh, they are already taking elaborate precautions to not make those entities obstacles to the engagement with the real because they are meant to be expressive of engagement with the real. They are not meant to stand in for the real. And yet that's what they end up doing when we filter them through this reifying understanding where we make a thing out of them. Mm -hmm. We make a thing out of Brahma. We make mm -hmm. a thing out of the Tao. Mm -hmm. And we subordinate everything else to that thing. And, and so, so then that thing becomes the ultimate obstacle to engagement with the real. And the interesting that's not thing what, is that, that uh, I, I'm, I'm fairly confident that that was not what was intended in any of these cases. Now, that mm -hmm. is, as it were, that's my gamble. That's what I put on the table. I am personally unconvinced that th that that was ever what was intended by these concepts. So, in a sense, this reification, whether it's a reification of Brahman, Tao, or any of the gods, the, the reification of the one, all of that, is taking that principle of divinity and uniqueness outside of our present existence and putting it somewhere else separating us from it existentially. And I think that what you're suggesting is that this whole process of reification alienates us 
from this intrinsic uniqueness that we carry or the one in us as Proclus and Iamblichus spoke of, that, that we get become alienated from it through the act of reification. Um, that yeah, we're I making mean, it somewhere else. Such a tricky concept because, uh, you know, there's a difference between the way in which philosophers talk about transcendence and the way in which it's deployed in a lot of discourse about religion. And usually I mean a kind of a meta discourse, a religious studies kind of discourse where we talk about transcendence. I mean, philosophically, what we generally mean by transcendence is that something is freed in whatever respect, and it can just be in a particular respect, from being reduced to something else. And so there's transcendence in the gods in all kinds of ways. Mm -hmm. They're immortal, for one. That's a kind of a transcendence of the conditions of mortality. But also on a very fundamental level, when we speak of them as being primary products of the principle of individuation, what we mean is that they are transcendent relative to being reduced to their principle. They're transcendent relative to being reduced to some substrate. And so when we talk about transcendence, I think that we need to, on the one hand, be specific about transcendent relative to what, what is what is it that threatens to absorb something or to uh, uh, to interpose itself between uh, uh, us and and that thing as the preconditions for our understanding of it? And on the other hand, I think that we need to recognize that transcendence in one respect or another is very widely distributed, even. Things like the finitude of mortal individuals is in itself a kind of transcendence. And so I, I, I would want, I would want the term transcendence not to be deployed as a simple uh, opposition between transcendence and imminence, as I think it often is in discourse, meta discourse about religion and rather would recognize how widely distributed transcendence of one kind or another is. When you say that transcendence can also be applied to our finitude, um, I just wanted to make sure I'm understanding the thread in which you're reflecting on transcendence. Could you give a little bit more explanation of how our finitude is also a kind of transcendence? It's a form of transcendence in the sense that we are differentiated. We're distinguished, we're articulated, we're present. And I think that imminence can be a form of absence, a form of vanishing. Um, in philosophy, we often speak of imminence in terms of what is imminent to consciousness and doesn't exist beyond consciousness. Yeah. And in this sense, the very sense in which something through its finitude falls short of being identified with the concept through which it's understood is actually the differentiation and the individuation of that thing. 
It's actually the grant of being to that thing from the principle of individuation. And when we talk about the priority of the principle of individuation to being, we're speaking about that kind of grant, that kind of unlimited grant of existence, of, uh, of unity in that sense, to things. Some things have that superlatively, other things pervadively. But that distinction is actually posterior to the primordial grant from the first principle of that thisness of things, what uh, what uh, uh, gets called uh, hexaity, the thisness of things. That Just to thisness, make... yeah. Oh, so, sorry. I, I, I think it's good. Well, maybe <laughs> to clarify, um, are you saying that maybe the the finite nature of us, our mortality, is that unifying uniqueness, is that unifying factor that connects us uh, to the one and and in that way deifies us? Uniqueness is the most unifying factor of things. That's the doctrine respecting the one. Okay. It's more fundamental than the property of being because there are things that are and that are not. And all kinds of things both are in certain respects and are not in certain other kinds of respects. Do you feel like the, the Hanads come before being or are they? Well, a- yes. And I mean, this, this is, this is the way that the doctrine is stated. And there's also a fairly simple way of understanding this too. I mean, this could be misleading, but. I think we can say, look, even in very mundane discourse, we can understand that something is one thing that doesn't exist. We can say that we can talk about a fictional character, for instance, and we can say Sherlock Holmes is different from Moriarty, but neither of them are in the sense that neither of them exist, neither of them are real within uh, uh, a certain scope of, of that predicate. But on the other hand, we have access prior to the sense of being or non-being, we have access to the notion of the unity, that is to say the individuality, the peculiarity of each of those things, or an impossible thing like a round square or, you know, some uh, some other impossibility. And, you know, the Greeks would, would, would speak of these things, you know, a goat stag or, or, mm-hmm. or whatever. We have access prior to the question of being or non-being to this notion of unity, peculiarity, individuality, Our language lets us down a little bit in English because, I mean, in Greek, you have this term idiost, which, curiously enough, we only have in English to refer to an idiot (laughs) or or idiocy. Um, We have the term peculiar, which um, in Latin is, is, is effective for speaking about unique particulars. But... Curiously enough, in, in, in modern English, it's come to mean something. It's, it has the connotation more of something strange or weird, something that's, you know, 
outside outside the 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 ordinary beyond the pale so our language makes it difficult but we have access to this concept and we, you know uh, sometimes i articulate this because i think it works a little better in english and there are traces of this in the greek as well but i'll speak about the distinction between who and what that we have access to a notion of whoness that doesn't depend upon whatness because we know that uh something which uh even if there was nothing to distinguish it from another similar what we know that we could acknowledge what we call its numerical difference by giving it a proper name we could speak of it as who we could take two items that are utterly identical that have no distinguishing characteristic other than that they are not the same peculiar item and we can recognize that by giving a proper name and there's not a culture on earth that doesn't observe the practice of proper name and the distinction between proper names and common nouns and this is because it's built on an underlying metaphysics and this is what's articulated through the platonic concept of individuation you know what you just said ed edward is 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 huge it's a huge um observation that that said very succinctly involves a significant amount of metaphysical reflection to really see the full impact of it i think what you just said about the proper names common nouns and it relates also as well to this entire discourse about uniqueness i think that you've been raising and in a sense this monotheistic god is a gigantic what in a sense that in a in, in another sense isn't even real in the kind of a uh, way of an encounter it's it seems more like um part of some sort of conceptualized i don't know how quite how to characterize it but um the whole enterprise of the metaphysical sort of imperialism seems just to swallow us up in a kind of a i you could almost make some sort of gnostic nightmarish description of it you know uh but that's where we've been for a long long time but then the monotheism you said in your recent manuscript on on ishwa and bakshi ish adluri and bakshi is that the monotheism eventually realizes its fulfillment or or its cons- full consequence in full just full blown atheism because there's really no deity in it in a sense at least that's the sense i got that the monotheism becomes atheism yeah i i think that i think that there is um there's a certain daylight between the actual experience of devout people people who have real and intense experience of their god mm-hmm. um Uh, even if they are in the monotheist faith their experience is not that different than the experience that polytheists have of their god or gods yes it's it's in the conceptual articulation it's in 
the uh, it's in the discourse of monotheism, which I I have argued has an independent trajectory that ends up in atheism. Okay. Uh, and and that ultimately separates itself from any concrete experience of the divine, because it has to always go beyond the particular to the more universal. And this opposition between universality and particularity dominates the discourse of monotheism. Whereas a discourse about uniqueness and individuality is irreducible to a discourse about universals and particulars. And it therefore, it doesn't have this trajectory toward an ever more formless, ever more universal, ever more distant from concrete experience right. notion of divinity that constantly recedes. It, it constantly uh, recedes from the worshiper, recedes from the, the particular in its very particularity because of this opposition between universality and particularity that mm-hmm. it embodies. Mm-hmm. And I don't see any way to escape that dialectic of universality and particularity other than through its sublation, to use Hegelian terminology, in this concept of the individual as unique, peculiar. That peculiarity in this sense, uniqueness in this sense, is the sublation of the opposition between universality and particularity. What do you guys think about the Parmenides embracing universality and particularity at the same time? I mean, it seems to me like that's kind of what's happening. That's the sense I get. I, of course, am not, you know, a seasoned philosopher, but I, I see in the plurality itself, I see a a look back to through unity to the one, and it kind of, for me, all becomes kind of that... Uh, Parmenidean kind of allness, if that makes any sense. Well, I don't think that, uh, I, I think that, you know, when we, when we get tangled up in the concepts, we fall back on what's conventional for us, which is the logic of the subsumption of particulars under universal. And so, we end up with some permutation of that if we're not being specific about the concepts, which means keeping them within their limited scope. And so, I mean, to me, if we're going to talk about universality and particularity. You know, the way in which the later Platonists talk about this is fairly conventional in speaking of these as forms of whole and part relationships. And so when we speak about things in terms of universals and particulars, what we're basically speaking about is things in terms of wholes and parts, things as being parts of other things, other things as being wholes composed of other things as their parts. And what the Platonists will say is that 
those relationships of part and whole are constitutive for beings qua beings, but that to recognize that the principle of individuation is more primordial than those and grounding for both of those is to recognize that it's irreducible to either of those. And that, therefore, the unity which is constitutive for a thing is not reducible to it being the part of some whole or to it being a whole of certain parts. And so, you know, in that sense, you know, it may be a bit, it may be a bit of a buzzkill. It may be a bit demystifying in certain respects. But I mean, this is how we keep a grip on the concepts and don't just end up going along with what's easy to think in our context. I think that, and I, I said this earlier too, but I do think that um, one thing that needs to be kept in mind, I think, with with the with the encounter, um, the encounter with ancient philosophy and um, classical philosophy, and the ideas we're discussing is, I, I feel very strongly that there needs to be a practical component of engagement, not just. Um, intellectual retrocination, but also direct um, uh, contemplative and and or theurgic work, which enables us to to encounter uh, these realities directly through uh, visionary means through uh, I know I know Greg works with uh, with uh, dream work as well and I found his ideas about that pretty inspiring personally and um, I think that, you know, dreams, theurgy, um, psychedelics are valid, completely valid in my opinion, as long as they're used in a responsible manner. One could say a shamanic manner. And, and again, all these things kind of act in conjunction, you know, I mean, you might do a theurgic rite and have a visionary dream, or you may have a visionary dream. I, I have dreams sometimes that then determine a trajectory of not only, um, spiritual or magical work but also contemplative a contemplative direction that lasts me for you know sometimes a couple of years and then other times you know a psychedelic experience uh, may provide us with that especially if it's done in conjunction with theurgic rites or active dreaming and i think that when we when we bring this element of exper experiential exper experimentation in when we try to test these intellectual hypotheses, then we can sort of extricate ourselves from um, becoming caught into this sort of intellectual entelechies that can emerge from mere analytical reflection. It's, does that make sense? Yeah. You know, Janice, I, I think, too, that that the intellectual work or the intellectual excitement and, and, and reflection gets its gets its impulse and trajectory precisely from those kinds of encounters that you're talking about and and that when when our thinking and articulating stays connected to that then it becomes fruitful and when we when we lose touch with that then it then it sort of tends to drain us and and we we lose direction but ideally um the conceptualization is is uh, just another expression 
of, in a way, the theurgic um, enrootedness of, of the enterprise. At least I'd like to think it is. And I think that that's how, like, Proclus even, I think, talks about it in, in that way. Um, when he's commenting on the, on the Timaeus, he's, he's engaged in a kind of visionary intellectual activity, which is more theurgic, you could even say. That, um, yeah. I couldn't so, agree yeah, more. I, I would agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. Uh, practical experience is indispensable. And it's 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 not the enemy of intellectual uh, of intellectual work and intellectual articulation of that experience. Rather, they are absolutely indispensable to one another. Uh, the experience demands interpretation, and the interpretation only makes sense grounded in experience of whatever kind. Absolutely. I want to share something uh, that circles us back to the beginning uh, that I think you guys might appreciate. Uh, I think Edward, you were mentioning, you know, some, um, you know, uh, the lived experience of people who might not have been educated, you know, in these more rigorous traditions being equally valid. And I actually had a, a dream, uh, once where I was being shown just simple ritual worship in India. And it was in the dream. I was also being shown how this very just simple puja to, I believe, Kali or Tara was in essence a, a the most profound theurgic rite. That it was uniting, you know, the the the, the absolutely you know hypercosmic, the end cosmic with the immediacy, the imminent material, and yet it was the most simple reverential actions that did that. And I realized. You know, in that dream, this insight was something that penetrated through the the layers of my intellect, and I, I grasped this in this visceral way. Mm, mm. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've certainly had very similar experiences. Beautiful. And I think that when it comes down to that root level where the most simple thing expresses these contemplations in a way of just direct experience, it's amazing because we see we see the hermetic axiom at work there of as above so below i mean it's really the 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 imminent and the transcendent are like the two faces of of janus put a word on it there put right had to end with (laughs) (laughs) okay guys well i think that was probably a good place to end it um Mm -hmm. very good yeah this was fun um we covered a lot um a lot of food for thought so we appreciate it very much guys uh seriously Thank you. I had a great time. Thanks a lot. Yeah, it was very interesting. I loved it. And thanks so much for setting it up, guys. Yeah, and with reverence and appreciation, I mean, we we express our gratitude to both of you. We have we hold you both in the deepest respect, and you know, hopefully, friendship as well. We really appreciate you, your minds and your souls as people, and we're grateful that you exist in this day and age. Okay, that was a landmark episode. Um, we were honored and humbled by the fact that both of these world-class scholars, I mean, really intellectual luminaries of this generation, decided to come on our humble little podcast and discuss some really issues of profound depth. Um, this was a podcast episode that I believe is is something that 
could be actually studied by students in universities, um, independent scholars, as well as um, practitioners who are deeply involved in um, theurgic and uh, contemplative practice in the Western tradition, especially um, the Hellenic-influenced Western tradition. I don't even know what to say. I feel like it is all been said during this. Um, you know, I I don't claim to be able to say anything that can compare with the uh, profound um, explication that we just encountered here. So I'm just going to ex express my gratitude for that. And uh, you have anything to add, Dominic? Um, I, th I think it was extremely illuminating. And I think that there's a lot of food for thought for people who are examining these late antique, antique uh, systems. Just because it was difficult doesn't mean that you should shy away from it. Um, we didn't want to dumb this one down. These guys are just brilliant intellects with a lot of uh, amazing insight. And, you know, it is what it is. It, it may be something that you need to digest over time. Um, I'm going to have to listen to it a few times, I'm sure. But we are just very grateful and fortunate to be able to have uh, had these guys pull us out of the mud, so to speak, and um, help us up a few rungs of the ladder. So having said that, let's move into our book review segment that you're going to handle today. Okay, our reading, reading uh, rainbow, I hope I'm allowed to say reading rainbow. Our reading rainbow book today is uh, it's called The Spiritual Roots of the Tarot, the Cathar Code Hidden in the Cards. It's by Russell Sturgis. I am a, um, a lifelong uh, tarot, tarot enthusiast. I have been a um, professional reader for the majority of my life. Um, I'm not going to go into my age here. Uh, and if you ask my kids, they'll probably say I'm older than I actually am. But um, I can say that I've been professionally or and uh, personally reading tarot for 20, almost 29 years. And um, so anything I find that kind of piques my interest at this point, I usually I usually feel pretty enthusiastic about, as, a, as I mentioned. This book is along the lines of discussing the connection between the Cathars and the symbolism of the Tarot. It really discusses the connection between the Holy Grail, the Cathars, the Tarot, and it really came from a discovery of this author when he was contemplating the magician and the strength cards. After doing this, he developed an insight that there was a direct connection between the Cathars, the Grail tradition, and the Tarot. This book explicates, especially using the Marseille pattern Tarot, uh, th these connections between the uh, Cathar theology, the medieval culture, the Grail mysteries, you know, Joachim Fiore and his ages. I mean, it goes through many different interesting and very Gnostic approaches. It's an inspiring book. I enjoyed it a great deal. Uh, it seems that he has a particular influence, uh, I mean, emphasis on the uh, Jean Noble Tarot, although the Fleurnoy Marseille is also mentioned in here and shown. Um, I feel that this dovetails well with uh, Paul Hewson's book on the medieval influences on the Tarot, as well as Nigel Jackson's book, Dame Fortune's Wheel. It's really important to understand now that we've started to grow beyond 
these sort of uh, 19th century fantasies about the origins of the tarot, which we owe in part to Court de, de Gabelon. Uh, but now, now that we've sort of grown beyond that in scholarship, we can start to explore the general root, the genuine roots in um, Renaissance culture, the preceding medieval culture, the uh, mystical Catholic and Gnostic undercurrent to the Christian culture, drawing on pagan roots, including Celtic mysteries. It goes very deep. The thread and the line uh, go really into the immaterial and spiritual realm. I found this book valuable, and um, he calls the knowledge the Cathar Code, and he goes into the way that he developed these ideas into a uh, program of personal personal growth. I found this book a useful complement to my tarot studies, and uh, you know, as long as you you know view it in that light, and as always, you know, just have a um, your retain your own understanding as you move through this and apply the understanding of the book to your own experience. It will greatly, uh, I believe enhance you in that regard. So that's pretty much it. It's called the spiritual roots of the Tarot. I do recommend it. It's on inner traditions. Yeah. I also have a copy and I enjoy that as well. Um, there are a lot of interesting uh, ideas presented in the book. So, um, Having said all that, we are going to head out. Thank you for listening. You can find us on Facebook, iTunes, YouTube, everywhere else. And uh, that's about it. 